Well, church, we are studying this book of 1 Peter, and today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body upon the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Scripture, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to understand and make application. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 11 has been broken down by some and said that it is a section which deals with living as exiles and bringing glory to God in a hostile world. Last week, we discussed the issue of slaves who were being unjustly treated and how should they respond. And, and I gave this as a thesis statement that really is part of the whole passage is that it is a glorious thing, the Bible says here, it's a glorious thing when you are so mindful of God that you live in a fashion that brings a hearing for the gospel and glory to the name of the Father, even when treated unjustly. It's a glorious thing. As you're mindful of God, that you walk in such a fashion that you're able to proclaim the gospel and glorify God in the midst of suffering, even when it's unjust. And so that's the thesis. Now, this morning, I'm going to interchange persecution and suffering. This text is primarily about persecution, but I'm going to interchange that with persecution for our understanding. So let's, let's dive in. 1 John chapter 2 is a passage well known by people that have been a believer very long. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in this worldly system, For if there is a love for the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then it says, for all that is in the worldly system, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there's there's a worldly system that seduces and and beckons and brings you down. And and really, you read this verse, I read this verse, and I go, you know, if you are in prison and you're barely surviving... This passage is easier to deal with than if you have families and they need braces and and they need to go to practices and you're trying to save some money for retirement and you're trying to do this and do that because it's it's so easy to be inundated with, with, with good things, but still inundated. So this calls for a, a singular focus on understanding that we are to be people who 
honor the Lord. There's a little couplet written by a guy named William Dunbar in 1540s with Scotsman. He said this, man, please thy maker and be merry and set not this world a cherry. In other words, don't, don't give a cherry or a fig to the approval, the applause of the world, but work to please your maker. And that's, that's easier said than done. And so th this passage is a strong passage. This whole section is really, really strong. He calls them elect exiles. Exiles. And then he, he uses this word in this passage. The word is called. Called. It's used four times in the book of 1 Peter. Three times you're, you want to cheer, and the fourth time you go, mm, wait a minute. So chapter 2, verse 9, regarding called. He says this. He says, you are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes, called out of darkness into the marvelous light. Great. Chapter 3, verse 9. He says that you have been called to obtain a blessing. Oh, yes, called to obtain a blessing. I can do that. Chapter 5 and verse 10. And after you suffer a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, yes, called to eternal glory. But then the fourth use of called is in this passage. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called. Now, what is the this? The this is walking in a way that is honoring to the Lord. The this is responding with grace when you're treated unjustly. The, the this he is talking about refers to being people who live in such a fashion that you silence the, the, the catcalls and the lies and the innuendos of the foes of the gospel because you lived a life that's worthy of the Lord. For to this you have been called to live in such a way that you don't retaliate when you are put down, that, that, that you do not revile when people revile you, that you aren't deceitful and manipulative when others around you are deceitful and manipulative, because you live on the basis of the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of Christ. Now, I went to a seminary, and uh, we started every semester with a hymn and written by a British Baptist named Ripon in the 1700s. Many of you know it's entitled, How Firm a Foundation. First stanza, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Yes. But then the third stanza, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design your dross or your excess to, to, to consume and your gold to refine. That's much more difficult. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. So, so I've got to be honest with you, there are many days that I can sing that hymn with gusto and joy, but there are times when it's hard to sing that hymn. This week we had a wonderful young woman who was in our church for eight years and found out that in labor she had a severe complications, and right now she's fighting for her life in Tennessee. And I've got to be honest. There are times I just say, why? 
We have a delightful four-year-old grandson. And he's at that stage in his life where every time you ask him to do anything, he says what? Why? Get him put on your shoes. Why? Get him to eat your breakfast. Why? And you know, as grandparents, parents should probably be very patient, but there's going to come a time very quickly when the parents will resort to an answer that they swore they would never, ever use. Why? You got every parent here says they've been there because I said so. Let me just say, this text doesn't answer the ultimate whys of life. I, I can't answer why, except to say that there is a God who watches over us. And he's numbered the hair on our head, and he's good. This, this passage doesn't answer the ultimate why. I don't think anybody can. But what this passage does is it gives us a track to run on or a path to walk on that helps us to walk through sufferings and persecution. So I'm just going to give you some principles from the text. Number one, one way we walk with dignity and grace is because Christ is our model, our trailblazer. He has gone before us. Hebrews chapter 5 says this regarding Christ. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, so Christ the man, the God-man, Christ the man, we call this his Theological, we call this his, his active obedience. He, he was, because he submitted to the will of the Father as, as Christ the man, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He's been our trailblazer, our role model. Chapter 2 of Hebrews talks about the devil has been put to death by the cross. And it says this, verse 17, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or a covering by his blood for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's amazing. It's amazing. The living God became a man and suffered and has been a trailblazer for us. Read about an account that happened a couple of years ago. There was a debate on a college campus, I think, I think it was in Europe, and about Islam versus Christianity. And the Islamic scholar stood and he, he really said, we reject the Christian faith for a number of reasons. This is one reason Islamic people reject the Christian faith is we think it is untenable, unbelievable, way beyond the, 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 the realm of possibilities, and it's a blasphemy against a holy God who is eternal and far removed from us to say that God became a man. That is the ultimate blasphemy in the mind and heart of an Islamic person. And he sat down, and the Christian apologist stood up and said, I really, my friend has very clearly stated what we believe. He says, we believe that God became a man. His name was Jesus. Then he said this, one of the greatest lines I've ever read. Not only that, but our God, 
the man Jesus has nail prints in his hands and in his feet. Behold the glory of Christ in his steps. My dad uh, liked music when I lived with him as a young man. And we had something called a record player. And you put on a record player some vinyl discs. And you put the needle on it and it played music. Sometimes it crackled and snapped and it would jump if it's been scratched. But that's a record player. And my dad would come home and he'd say, tonight I want to hear old Satchmo, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong, an incredibly gifted African-American trumpet player. and My dad liked Louis Armstrong, Satchmo. Died in 1971. Satchmo did. My dad's still alive. But the, the signature song of Louis Armstrong, I think, was an African-American spiritual that was developed as they lived under slavery. And it goes like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows like Jesus. Sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost on the ground, but nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And the last stanza goes like this. If you get to heaven before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming to because nobody knows the troubles I've seen. That is great theology. You think about it. The living Christ, God in the flesh, Walk the path of suffering and pain. And we're being, we've been called to follow in his steps. Number two, persecution and suffering in a fallen world is inevitable. It's just inevitable. I mean, life is hard. You go through pain. As, as, as a culture departs from truth, our young people, God bless them, our college kids are on a retreat this weekend, our young people are going to have to be people of bravery. So chapter 2, verse 11 says, as we covered a few weeks ago, it says, I beseech you as alien and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Now, I look at our culture today and I keep thinking, regarding our, especially our attitude towards human sexualities, welcome to the first century. Welcome. Chapter 4, verse 4 is one of the key verses of this, this book, and it says this, that, it says that uh, with respect to this sexuality, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The word malign is the word we get our blaspheme from that. They, 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 they malign your character. So I'm, I'm telling you, there have been times in my life, as I looked at our culture, that, that you know, the, here, here's, here's God's timeless truth and, and the culture is here, you know. But I, I really believe this. I believe that, that, that now, man, we're, we're, we're over here, guys. We're, we've moved. And I'm telling you, if you're a young person today, your kids and your grandkids, it's Courage. I covered this with the men on Friday morning. I just said, you know, for example, 
I said, Google the word monogamy and read articles. I mean, a few years ago, we had people say, well, monogamy is not realistic. It's God never meant for one man and one woman to be together for life. I mean, nobody in the animal kingdom does that except the, the penguins and the whatever. And we're just, we're just part of the animal kingdom. And so it's just no big deal. We can't, we can't ask that. And, and you hear that more and more and more and more. And I, I just say, welcome to the, the first century. This one example, 2000, June of 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention made some changes to the Baptist faith and message, our confessional document. Article 3 says this, they added a sentence. God created male and female as the crowning work of his creation. But this sentence was added. Now, I remember when this sentence was added, I thought, why, why add that sentence? That's just, I don't understand why they added this. This is 2000. The gift of gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. Close quote. Now, today, this, this is a fire, this is a battleground. This is a battleground. And to stand up in our culture and say, you know, the Lord is good. The Lord made us male and female. We, we don't believe in, in, in pansexuality. We, we, don't, we don't go down the road of, uh, of transitioning. We don't, we don't, God made us male and female. It's a good thing. We rejoice in that. I mean, you're going to become more and more and more and more and more over here. It's going to take courage to stand with grace and dignity and love and brokenness. Listen, eight years ago, we didn't even know the term pansexual. Eight years, seven years. So I'm, I'm telling you, this suffering, persecution, marginalization, being pushed is just inevitable. There's a little statement in the worship guide that I got from a, a study on this issue. It says, Christians in the first century were distinctive because, and just lists, list a few things. Let me just mention them. Number one, Christians didn't go to the gladiatorial games where people shed blood for entertainment. They said, that we can't do that. They were considered weird. Christians would not proclaim that Caesar was Lord, thus making the state supreme. They said, we can't do that. Jesus is supreme. So they were marginalized. Two years after this letter is written, Nero accuses the Christians of burning parts of Rome to the ground. Christians said we can't support abortion and infanticide at that time, in that day, if, particularly if you had a baby girl, you would take her out and just leave her in the street, hoping somebody would pick her up. If not, she'd just die of exposure. I mean, that was, that was common. Infanticide was, was common. And you say, wow. And I think about us today. I think about a president named Bill Clinton who said, I want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. In 1993, now we've had states pass, really, bills that almost embrace infanticide. And when it happened, the Empire State Building is lit up and tugboats blow their horn and people are dancing in the streets. What has happened to us? Welcome to the first century. The good gift of sex was seen as that which was exercised only in marriage between a man and a woman. I mentioned three weeks ago that if you're a man of means in the Roman Empire at this time, you had a wife that had your legitimate offspring and you had a, 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 a person who met, met your passions and then you maybe had a third person that went to dinner parties with you who was philosophically attuned and could carry on a conversation. And to say to somebody, no, this is just one man and one woman, they go, man, you're weird. 
that the poor were befriended and cared for. Poor one befriended in the Roman Empire. All races and classes were mixed together in common worship. You know, an aristocratic patrician says, I can't believe you're worshiping with these people who are down and out and barely literate, if at all literate. But the Bible says, no, we do that. And then they preached that Christ was proclaimed as the only way to salvation in a culture that believed in multiple gods. Read this letter and understand where we live. Thirdly, Abba Father uses persecutions and sufferings to, or rejection and marginalization to shape, build, and get our attention. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Consider it joy, my brothers. Whenever you are buffeted about with trials of many kinds, for you know the testing of your faith develops steadfastness or perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James chapter 1, verse 12. And when you have stood the test of time and have persevered under trials, you will receive the crown of righteousness that the Lord will give to us. So, so, so I, I read that and I go, yeah. One of my favorite writers, a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who died just a few years ago, he was a Russian, and uh, he was a highly decorated, faithful artillery officer in the Soviet Army in World War II, and he wrote, wrote one letter, I mean one letter with one sentence that questioned the military insight of Joseph Stalin. One sentence. And they arrested him, and they sent him to a gulag for 10 years. While he was there, he dealt with cancer. He almost died. But while he was there, he came to know Christ. A physician told him about Christ. But this is what he writes. I've got part of it here. He says, in the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the excess of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Then he says this. This is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say sometimes to the astonishment of those around me, bless you prison. I nourished my soul there and I say without hesitation, Bless you, prison, for being in my life. Now, why? Because God uses persecutions and sufferings to shape and form us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, makes this observation. Lewis writes about what pain does. He says this. I'm going to read the whole quote. We, have, we can ignore even pleasure, but, but pain... Insist on being heard. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Look at the last sentence. But it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It, re it removes the veil 
and it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. So what what does that mean? See, so God God whispers to us in our pleasures, but his, his pain, pain that he brings in our life, is his megaphone to rouse us. And it says, this is what it does in a man's life. It, it pulls back the veil and it plants the flag of God's truth that says, life is brief. You deal with God. Do not live as unto yourself. Understand there's a heaven and there's a hell and there's a God who's spoken. It plants within the rebel soul a flag that says, think about these things. And there are people here this morning who are going through great pain. And the issue is, are we going to turn to the Lord and His way? There are people here who are being persecuted in some ways, marginalization, passed over for jobs. Are, are you going to revile? Are you going to threaten? Are you going to be deceitful like they are? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to honor Christ, and I'm going to walk with dignity and love, and I'm even going to pray for my enemies? It's huge. This is a huge passage. There's a book called Torture for, for Christ by a man named Richard Wormbrand. It's a delightful, powerful, incredible book, small book. He was a Romanian pastor who spent over 20 years in prison at two different times, I think eight years and 12 years. He said they would, uh, the authorities in Romania would take him out of his prison cell and they would put his feet in a device and they would take a board and they would beat his feet every day until they almost got to the bones. He said every day. And when he got out and he was able to get him to the, to the West, he came to the U.S. and he testified before a congressional hearing and talked about his sufferings of persecution and in a very unusual movement when people said, well, we're not sure how much of this is true. He, he took off his shirt and his whole back was a mass of scars and welts. It's hard to argue with that. But Richard Wormbrand, this pastor says, says, says I, I was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners in the name of Jesus. It was understood that whoever was caught preaching Christ would receive a severe beating. A number of us believers decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching the cross. So we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating, so everyone was happy. You got to get out of prison. They have this uh, gathering of everybody in town is supposed to show up. It's a command performance, and it's an indoctrination. And so there's some communist officials that got up, and they're putting down everybody and everything, and they start talking about the church and how Christ is not this, and he's not that, and the church is this. And he said, I was sitting there. This is, this is, this is really good. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina, my wife, told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of the Lord Christ. They are spitting in his face. I whispered to her. He's already been in prison eight years. I whispered to her, if I do so, you may lose your husband. She replied, quote, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband, close quote. Now, a wife like that will put starch in your cornflakes every morning. The Father uses persecutions and sufferings to shape and build our character. 
Fourthly, we, we go through sufferings, according to the text, as like Christ, as we continually entrust ourselves to the goodness of the Father. Continuously entrust, day after day, maybe hour after hour. Lord, I believe you're good. Chapter 2, verse 3, Lord, I've tasted the kindness of the Lord. I've tasted it by Christ. I've tasted it. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, if, if anyone wants to obtain a blessing, I, I do. If you want to obtain a blessing, then live this way. Whoever desires to live, love life and see good days, that's me, let, let, him, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And so, so the Lord's eyes are upon me. The Lord wants to bless. Am I going to live in a way that honors him? Do I continuously entrust myself to the goodness of the Father who watches over me? This week I was talking to a lady who's um, in her 80s. She's suffering physically. Can't see very well. She's talked to her about her husband that she loved dearly who died 26 years ago of pancreatic cancer. 26 years without her husband. And we talked. She said, you know, you know what I've learned as an older Christian? I said, why? She said, you know, I've been a Christian, I think, for many years, but it's only in the last few years that I've come to understand that God is my heavenly Father and He watches over me and nothing happens in my life that He doesn't bring to it. And she laughed. She said, and that is so freeing. <laughs> she said it three times. That is so freeing. Oh, yeah. That's so freeing. Oh, wow. And, and so I read this. That's exactly what this text is saying. Jesus continually entrusted Himself to the Father. But because the Father is good. This is the way it works. You, you hit a roadblock. We all hit roadblocks. And, and you say, Father, as, as I face this suffering or persecution, I trust that you are my Abba Father, that you love me with an everlasting love, that you've numbered the hair upon my head, as you said, Jesus, that Psalm 3 says that the Lord is a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That Psalm 11 says people say run and flee to the mountains, but I believe that you're on your throne and you watch over me and I trust you. I believe you. I'm going to go forward. As I go forward, I'm continuously entrusting myself to the Father. And it is good. Point five. To the one who judges justly. Now bear with me here. Uh, I may lose some of you, but I'll come back around and pick you up. Okay? Um, he judges justly. Please hear this. We are not Stoics. Stoics are people who believe that there may be a God, but it's undefinable. And to make the best out of life, we must just grin and bear it. Truman Capote said this. Died because of alcohol and drug abuse. Very gifted writer. Lived a desolate life. He said, he said life is a moderately written play with a badly written third act. Close quote. In other words, life is hard, and then when you get old, it's really hard, and you die. And we say, we say no, 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 you don't get it. That, that, that life can be very hard, and life can be very difficult, absolutely. But there is a hope that takes us all of our days and then ushers us into the place called heaven forever and ever and ever. Therefore, we're not stoics. We, just, we don't just put up with it. We are entrusting continuously the Father who judges justly. Listen to me. There is... There is a cry in my heart for justice. 
okay, and your heart because you're made in the image of God. And you read the Bible, God exercises justice. He delights in justice. Jeremiah 9, Psalm 2, at the cross, justice and mercy meet. Okay, God is a God of justice. A couple of examples from movies. I occasionally will meet people who have never seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I, I'm sorry for them. And I, I just say, if you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, just watch it. It's so good. Written by a guy named Tolkien. There's a guy named Gandalf who's a Christ figure. So in the second movie, The, the Two Towers, you may not enjoy this, but I'm going to really enjoy telling you this story. So they're, they're in Helm's Deep, and Aragorn is there. Aragorn is the man. He will become king. And Aragorn looks at a king who's been vacillating back and forth. He's kind of been, you know, given into despair and depression, and, but he's come back. And they're, they're surrounded by two million orcs who are really bad, bad people, just bad, bad things. And there's just a few of them, and, and they're battering down the doors. And, and, and so Aragorn says, um, or the king says with great disdain, what can men do against such reckless hate? And Aragorn says, ride out with me. Let's give it our best shot. We're going to die. Let's do it with dignity. And then the king rouses himself and he lifts up his hand. And he says, for death and glory. And they get their horses. They put on their armor. And, and, and he says, and Aragorn says, and for your people. And then the sun comes through a portal. And Gimli, the dwarf king, says, it's the fifth day. Because Gandalf, here's Gandalf. Gandalf, the Christ figure, said on the fifth day, I'll come to your help. But they'd forgotten that. They're, they're, they're going to die. So th they go out, and they say one last time, and they ride out with dignity as the men of the West. And they're just being engulfed by these orcs. And all of a sudden, Gandalf comes on the top of the hill. And Gandalf says, the men of the West are fighting alone. And then another guy comes and says, but not alone anymore. And all of a sudden, a million knights go charging down the hill, and they just wipe out the orcs and save the day. And I'm just standing on my chair screaming with joy. Yes, you beat the bad guys. That's God-given. Justice. Another example. Bear with me. Like I said, I'm, this is fun for me. How about you? Some people I meet have not seen this Western, the best Western that's ever been made. Now, don't, I may not, shouldn't recommend, probably there's something that I shouldn't recommend. I forgot. It's been a long time. But it is so good. Here's the background. Wyatt Earp and his band of brothers are pursuing some guys named the Cowboys. They wear red, red kerchiefs. And... And so they, 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 they pillage, they destroy, they murder, they kill kids and women. They're bad. And, and so at one point in the, in the movie, Wyatt Earp says, we've got to take care of these guys. They're, they're at a train station. And one of the cowboys is there, and they find him, and, 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 and Wyatt Earp knocks him down. And, and, and uh, 
as he starts talking to him, and as he does though, his friends come walking through the mist of the train, and they stand there shoulder to shoulder. And this is a biblical story in this regard. Romans 13 says that God-sanctioned governing authorities are to put down bad guys and bless good guys. That the, that the, that the government does not bear the sword for nothing. That's the direct quote. So Wyatt Earp stands over this guy, and, and he says this. I'm going to give you word for word. You call down the thunder, well, now you're going to have it. And he pulls back his coat, and he says, this says U.S. Marshal. See, Romans 13, okay? And he says, tell them the law is coming. Tell them I'm coming, and hell is coming with me. And they take care of the cowboys. And you're standing up and you're cheering. And you're going, it's, it's good. My heart rejoices when bad guys get it. Last Sunday, turned on the internet. A story was given that Ahu Bakar al-Baghdadi, the caliphate of ISIS, it was being pursued by army rangers, went into a tunnel with three kids, detonated a suicide vest, and killed the children and himself. And my heart grieved for the children. My heart rejoiced that Baghdadi was dead. One of our lead newspapers released just for a few minutes a headline that says, A revered Muslim scholar dies. Which is, let me tell you, he, 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 I can tell you what he did because we have children here. He abused women in ways that are unimaginable. He ordered the massacre of a minority group called the Yazidis in the Arab world. Thousands were put to death. He believed in genocide. He sold children into sexual slavery. He ordered for the beheadings of people and videotaped them. He had a brave Jordanian fighter pilot put in a cage, doused with gasoline, and burned alive on video. This guy was bad. Saying he's revered Muslim scholars like saying Adolf Hitler was a community organizer who spoke well. It's ridiculous. And I thought about that, and I thought, I thought about his life, but listen, listen to me. The judgment that he faced in that tunnel is nothing compared to the judgment he will face before the living God. We know in Revelation that the people say when they see the wrath of the on the face of the Lamb, may the mountains fall upon us. So I've said all that. But let me say this to us. When I read Romans 12, I trust the God who will judge justly. And he may use government people now, legitimate government people now, or, he, or it may definitely come on the day of judgment, but my response is to be non-retaliatory in my personal dealings. My response is not to be deceitful towards deceitful people, but to be above reproach. My response is to walk the path of Christ, to pray for those who persecute me, to pray for those who are my enemies, and to leave judgment with God. The Bible says, Romans 12, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We're not vengeful people. We trust the law or we trust God to work in the law present or in eternity. I hope you understand that. We are not Stoics. 
9-11-2001, a beautiful Monday. All of us who are a little over can tell you exactly where we were on that Monday when the Twin Towers came down, when the Pentagon was attacked, when a brave group of people commandeered an airplane that probably was heading for the White House and the plane fell from the sky into a farm field in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> we called a prayer meeting that night and uh, had a huge response. As we organized the prayer guide, one of the prayer guides, part of the prayer guide was Matthew 5, to pray for those who are our enemies. And so we spent a significant amount of time praying for the families of the men who flew those planes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon and into that cornfield in Pennsylvania. And, and a number of people said to me afterwards, that was the most powerful thing I've experienced in prayer in my life. Because it's like Jesus. It's like Jesus. Well, we don't retaliate. We don't deceive. We don't threaten. We walk his path. Sixthly, in our suffering and persecution, three more minutes and I'm done. In our sufferings and persecutions and hardships, the power of the shepherding Christ and his cross work must always be central in our thinking. So I'm saying this passage, I just keep on beating on it, and I get verses 24 and 25. So, so you have to realize the flow of the passage is uh, uh, don't, you know, fight against the culture in this area and, 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 and submit yourself to the governing authorities and live such a good life that you silence the criticism of foolish men. And, and then if, if you're in a, uh, slaves live in such a way that, that, that you, you live out the reality of Christ. And, and then it says, follow in the steps of Christ. And, and next week we'll go to chapter three where it says how, how women who are considered mere property in this era lived with unbelieving husbands in a way that honors Christ. And, and so it's just group after group after group after group. And then right in the middle of it, verse 24 and 25. And I'm going, it seems, it seems out of place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, becoming a curse for us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, and now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And I'm, so, so what is Peter saying here? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, what is he trying to teach us? Here's what I think he's trying to teach us. That in the midst of all of this, how in the world do you not retaliate to people who are putting you down? How do you not jump on the bandwagon of being deceitful and undermining in a gossip when people are doing that to you? How, how, how do you live this way, walk the path of Christ? Here's the answer. In part, remember the glory of the cross. Remember the greatness of sins forgiven by a bloody Savior who died for us on the tree. He was a curse for us. By the Spirit, that energizes and strengthens. And then it says this, by his wounds you have been healed. And I read that and I go, you know, this is what it means. Christ did not suffer a horrible death on the cross, the eternal God, for our sins, so that we could be retaliatory, threatened for threatening, deceitful people. He died on the cross so that we might live like Christ. Preach the gospel. Love people. You see, the Bible is not 
this, parents, we have to deal with this. Christian school, PCA, we have to deal with this. It's not do, 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 behavior modification. It's, it's here, worship, 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 adore Christ, live this way. See, it's not just do, he's saying, he's saying, behold the glory of Christ. Worship, 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 live this way. See, that, that's, that's what I need to hear. The life-changing power of beholding the Christ. So, we're called to this. We're called to, at times, walk very difficult paths. We're called to be people of broken, loving, gracious, humble bravery. We're called to be people who return curses with blessings. We can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We sang in here this a while ago, a few minutes ago. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, Forth in thine errands, send us to labor for thy sake. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this passage that is so strong and so hard. And I confess that I, without the Spirit of Christ, will return threats with threats. That when people are deceptive and, and, and mean-spirited, and blaspheming the character of my, well, my character, that I, that, that, that I will retaliate and with one-upmanship. I need the power that you bring, Holy Spirit. We all do. So, Lord, from cowardice, defend us. I, I thank that dear woman who said, I'd, I'd rather have a dead husband than be married to a, to a, car, a coward. Uh, I pray we'd be people who, who are broken and joyful and kind and speak the truth. I pray that you'd wake us up from lethargy. I especially pray for our young people. Lord, as I, as, please, please raise up godly people who are planted in the Word and who know how to speak it with joy and dignity to a world that's just abandoned so many precepts that were once held dear. Have mercy upon us. So, God, uh, speak to us. <clears throat> Carry us along in Jesus' name. Amen.